This is the Pain Information Network. Sometimes when you talk, you talk too much. So I'm going to let these guests talk for themselves, and I thank them so much. This is a this is a really important episode. Pleasure here in Puerto Rico, San Juan, Miguel de la Garza. We're at an advisory meeting, and um, he's here with me today. I had the distinct pleasure of speaking at FSIP, or Florida Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting. Um, That was back in April, and we interviewed a very special man, and I've held back on publishing this because I wanted it to be right. It's going to be really a signature uh, podcast, and so Dr. De La Garza and I are sitting out here, and we had to find some place to get away, so... You know, what do I do? I pull them out anywhere I could find them. So you hear a little background noise, but that's okay because uh, it's great Latin music. Now, the sad thing is we lost our guest, and I'm going to have Dr. De La Garza talk about that, is he is a personal friend. So, uh, Dr. De La Garza. So, Hans, thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak to this particular individual who uh, I think was a father to many in the field, even several generations back, he came to the U.S. from uh, Europe carrying with him a suitcase with a powder in it that Customs let it bring it through and it ended up being a kilogram of fentanyl, fentanyl base, and he used it to do seminal research into opioid pharmacology. Uh, at a time when there were only things like morphine and Demerol available for postoperative pain control. And he really opened up a field of synthetic mu-opioid agonists that we didn't have here uh, before. And the individual I'm speaking of is Dr. Ted Stanley, who was a seminal researcher in the field, but was also a very elegant, uh, wonderful gentleman. Unfortunately, he passed away recently from metastatic disease from prostate cancer, literally had it all in his spine and even in his brain. And he, based upon my uh, <clears throat> personal plea to him, came and gave a lecture at the Florida Society Interventional Pain Physicians and really wowed the audience with the content, the presentation, and unfortunately it happened to be his last lecture um, but I just wanted to give a shout-out to him upstairs because I'm sure he's looking down on us and enjoying our time here in the Caribbean. Well, he he really took a uh, signature drug that we use today uh, rather ubiquitously. We've used I've used it personally from cardiac to normal induction. Uh, I've used it uh, for straightforward analgesia, used it in the ICU, used it uh, for interventional procedures because fentanyl, as we've talked about, is one of those drugs that is so important to us in medicine. Um, We look to Dr. Stanley as somebody who not only had vision, but he really understood the potential for this drug and took it to the next level. Now, sure, there's the drug abuse side of fentanyl, but, you know, that's not our thing. Our thing with this drug is taking care of patients, and that drug could do it. It had pretty intense cardiac stability, making cardiac anesthesia a whole new deal 
and it was one of those drugs that um, could be administered and given to sick people that we'd normally have a very dicey induction on to put them to sleep. But it was a great drug, especially for analgesia. It's about 50 to 75, maybe 100 times more potent than morphine. But it comes in micrograms, which is a fraction of milligrams. So we just dose adjust. Now, back to Dr. Stanley. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing him. Had no idea. I had no idea. He was elegant. Um, He was very poetic with the drug as well because he... He was into this drug from not only a a developmental standpoint, but a use standpoint. Tell me about some of the things that uh, were kind of interesting about the use. Well, fentanyl is basically the progenitor for fentanyl-like compounds, and there are many that were developed that were never brought to market. And some of these were so potent that they would actually use them in different animal models to basically incapacitate the animal. And the pharmacology and the pharmacokinetics of, say, for instance, putting this in an aerosol and then exposing a monkey in a chamber to this to get that monkey to basically allow you to handle them without literally trying to attack you was one thing. And then further to that effect, we see pictures of Dr. Stanley in his lecture where he's literally walking up to a bull elk that weighs over 2,000 pounds, and he's petting the elk on the face. And we see another picture of him standing on top of a bull elephant that weighed over 10,000 pounds because he had been anesthetized with carfentanil, which is stronger than fentanyl. So in practicum, these things are used in veterinary medicine, but the instance of the pharmacology intersection between the animal model and the human model were integral to our understanding of fentanyl and how these things actually work. And even insofar as the issue with abuse, we still, without that research, would not understand the importance of being able to use these things in appropriate settings, but also furthermore understand the danger associated with abuse, misuse, and diversion of these things in the illicit drug market. You said he aerosoled it or he saw the potential to get this drug in a uh, molecular particulate form in the atmosphere. So there was a little bit of discussion, which we kind of skirted around because we're doctors, about weaponization of this drug. You've heard of that. I plead the fifth. However, in conversations with him... The suggestion is that certain situations in Chechnya, certain medications were used in certain circumstances to incapacitate over 200 people, and then those that survived were then revived with um, opioid antagonists, which will go unnamed. And furtherance to that, also other governmental organizations within the borders of Canada and Mexico are interested in this research as well. And frankly, those are still uh, under protection. And so I don't know much more than what was reported in lay press, but needless to say that certain three-letter organizations were very interested in using these in hostage situations, and some other organizations used them in certain areas of far eastern Europe uh, to great uh, effect. 
Okay. He was a man that uh, knew how to enjoy life. Um, he was an educator and a practical man. He saw an opportunity with fentanyl, took it and ran, and so there's a certain personality that'll do that. It's not really an entrepreneur. In medicine, that's not an entrepreneur. That's somebody that sees a valuable clinical effect and explores it scientifically. What about him? What made him special to do that? He's a visionary. In fact, he helped develop the artificial heart with Jarvik at the university <clears throat> um, where he was at. So not only did he have multiple patents within the anesthesia, but he had multiple patents in cardiovascular medicine. But he was also a very elegant man. He was probably as well informed in terms of the political establishment and did uh, lobbying in Washington and within the areas where he worked. In, in addition, he was also a very fine connoisseur of fine wines and scotch. So if someone has the breadth of knowledge to be able to understand the vagaries of a triple malt scotch, and then on the same token can have a discussion about carfentanil, remifentanil, and fentanyl-like compounds, you've got a pretty interesting individual. The uh, amazing thing about him was he was so un underspoken of himself. He never had a pretense. You'd have never known. When he got up on stage in Florida, I'm like, I know this guy, um, but I knew him more by legend than by um, his self-promotion. He didn't do that at all. He was a non-traditional academic that made a huge impact few of us can do. I neglected to say that he successfully pioneered uh, one of his medications, the fentanyl Orolet, that became Actique, and then his company sold to uh, Cephalon, and then Cephalon to Teva, and he managed to take his company public and sell it for over $150 million. So in that regard, he had it all. He had the political acumen, he had the educational acumen, and he had the fiscal sense to set basically set himself up for life so that he could look at those research questions that he wanted to look at. He didn't have to practice. He didn't need to practice. He was set for life. He did it, and he taught people for the love and the joy of teaching. Well, he did it well. He gave a great lecture, and uh, I appreciate you bringing him down. Um, it was... It, I, I'll get some pictures posted. You two sitting there, um, you look great. I, I, I'm sorry those are the last pictures, but final thoughts? I just have been blessed to have the opportunity to have spent time with him over the years. And um, his family are beautiful people. They live uh, in Salt Lake City. He has a beautiful, beautiful lodge in the mountains. And often in his middle and later years, he would go there literally to contemplate life. I've been there personally, and I was blessed to have been there. It is literally an otherworldly place. And frankly speaking, um, I'm blessed to have known him. I agree with that. Thanks again, Miguel. Well, I'm at the Florida Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, and I have the distinct honor of having Dr. Ted Stanley with me, and to his right, Miguel De La Garza. The nice thing about these meetings is, as we all know, we run into um, really giants that uh, we stand on the shoulders of. Um, 
Dr. Stanley has been practicing for a number of decades, has a fascinating story of the evolution of one of the most important drugs that we use in the pain management arena and in anesthesia. Simple anesthetics uh, are not always simple. They have to develop a life and uh, a strong understanding of how they work, where they're from, um, their pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, all these big words we use. And this is one of the men that was a true pioneer with a tremendously important drug and has a little story to tell us about some animals as well. So, Dr. Stanley, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I uh, was born and brought up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, a long time ago, 1940 I was born, and uh, went to city schools, uh, Columbia, uh, Columbia College, and then Columbia Medical School, and then I thought I wanted to be a cardiac surgeon, so I went to the University of Michigan for a couple of years, and uh, ran into, uh, in the Midwest, a fellow by the name of Willem Kulf. Uh, that may not be a common, uh, knowledgeable person to a lot of people, but this is the inventor of dialysis and the artificial kidney and uh, intraortic balloon pumping, the artificial heart, the artificial lung, and many other artificial organs, the father of artificial organs. Oh, wow. And I, I, I followed him. I did a fellowship with him uh, in 1967, 1968 in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I got very excited. It was a fun year. We were doing all kinds of animal research with primitive organs that would eventually become uh, the artificial heart. Uh, so after a year there, I decided that I loved that kind of research, but I, but I had seven or eight years more of residency in oh, surgery. Wow. Yeah. And I said, well, I, I, I got to do this faster. So anesthesiology, which had been a preceptor for me during, uh, preceptorship for me during medical school, seemed like a good thing. Went back to Columbia in New York, did two years of residency in anesthesiology, which is all I needed to do at that time. Had a commitment to the Air Force uh, through, uh, it was called the Berry Plan in those days, mm -hmm. the, the Vietnam War era. And uh, so I had to give two years to the, uh, to the U.S. Air Force. I got sent to San Antonio, Texas, um, the biggest hospital in uh, uh, the Air Force. They did everything there. And it, and it came from all over the world there. And I was head of cardiac anesthesia as a young buck. And uh, this was a time when uh, morphine was in its heyday as an anesthetic. So I did a bunch of patients. Every patient was a study patient. They either got morphine or they got the standard anesthetic, which was halothane at that time. And we got data on every patient. Um, then I went back to Utah because I wanted to be with Colf uh, in the Department of Anesthesiology. Plus it's God's country. Yeah, it plus it's God's country. And in the, in, in the Department of Surgery, Division of Artificial Organs. And Colf at that time had more money than everybody else in the university put together <laughs> between grants and contracts. And he had a team of bioengineers, anesthesiologists, internists, um, bio everything. I mean, it was the most exciting time you could imagine. And, and we were doing research three times a, a week. And two days a week I did anesthesia, mostly cardiac anesthesia. And, uh, 
And he said to me, anything that you, that we, any study you do, we want to publish. So we want you to present it. So any, anything you send, any abstract, any place, I pay for, you write the paper, we get it published. And so I was a publishing nightmare. I mean, I was yeah. presenting and publishing and it was artificial organs. It was anesthesiology. And at the time, um, Shortly after I got back after the Air Force to Utah, uh, one of these uh, medical directors from the Janssen Company came oh, and wow. said, I have this new drug, fentanyl. Would you be willing to study it? Now, I had published a lot of morphine studies. So I began studying fentanyl in animals first for three years, published a bunch of studies. We did studies with morphine and fentanyl in animals with before and after artificial heart implantation. We did all kinds of interesting stuff. And uh, so I did my studies, and pretty soon, in my mind, fentanyl was ready to go to humans. So that brings me up to uh, where I started my talk today, if you want to continue. I oh, yeah, on. definitely. That, that, that talk was fascinating. And this was, this was fun stuff. I mean, very envious. You were in the golden age of medicine, um, when the encumbrances of many of the problems we have doing studies just were not there as barriers. Absolutely. And you could get stuff done, couldn't you? You could get stuff done. I mean, between 1972 and 1978, I published 100 studies in peer-reviewed journals. Okay? And so I became – I went from assistant professor to full professor. Well, I, had, I, gave, I spent a year as associate professor. But I had 100, 100 studies and more than 200 presentations. And I was traveling every week. And my wife said, do, you, do we have a marriage? Yeah, really. I, I kind of <laughs> get that. But it was uh, – it eventually <laughs> got fun because it took the wife and the kids to some of these presentations. And uh, it, it was a kick-ass experience. And you're at University of Utah right now. At, I'm still there. I mean, I, I first got there in 67, four years away from 72 till today. Uh, I'm still there. It's the only place. I've had, that's my only job. Well, there is no other universities. <laughs> well, we, I'm, I'm just going to tell you up front, uh, you're at a great place. And um, growing up in Colorado, I can tell you, Utah was the place we vacationed. I loved it. loved it out there. It's just so much. So much. So somehow you ended up um, shooting uh, darts at animals. Well, you know, uh, when I started high-dose fentanyl in patients and after a year or two, it became the standard cardiac anesthetic technique for really sick people. The Janssen people took notice, and they said, hey, would you come to Belgium? We're having a stress-free anesthesia conference, and we'd love to hear about some of your work. So I went there, and I met Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul Janssen. Everybody who gets to know him calls him Dr. Paul. Humble, oh, wow. wonderful man who created more drugs uh, in his time on Earth, than the next five largest companies put together. Yeah, I mean, eighty drugs uh, between 1960 and and, nine, and and 2000. FDA approved. Isn't that remarkable? It's, it's, it's just remarkable. remarkable. You know, it takes a billion dollars to take a drug to approval. Yeah, yeah. And he did the same amount for animals, and then the same amount for plants. I mean, there are drugs for plants, and he was studying all of this stuff. And this benefits humanity. It, it benefits the earth. Exactly. What it does. Well, this, this man, between Kolf, who 
became one of my mentors, uh, and and Jansen. I got mentored by two of the greatest people on earth. Both of these people were nominated for the Nobel Prize three times. Gee. Neither one got it for political reasons, mostly. But anyway, it's, it's it's gorgeous to be in their environment, to have them as friends. And as I as I said in the lecture, uh, I studied alfentanil and sufentanil at the University of Leiden in uh, the Netherlands for a year that I was there, partially supported by Jansen. And my family and I went to every country in Western Europe during every weekend. Sure. So it was a wonderful thing for the family. Uh, I, saw, I saw Dr. Paul every three weeks. A car would come from Belgium and drive me to Dr. Paul. I spent the whole day visiting the lab, all the labs, and my first visit was with him. And he'd say, well, well, it's new this week. And then he'd tell me what he was doing. And, and this is one of the gods of pharmaceutics. Yeah, and he was like true. my father, you know. And, and so it was always so exciting, you know. And, uh, and then when I came back to the U.S., he sent just about every drug that he thought might be useful to me to study in some way. And I had them. They were in my desk. <laughs> every drug Jeez. in gram quantities, you know. And they had a fentanyl, sufentanil, carfentanil, all the opioids, every other drug. And, you know, in those days, you could do that. Nobody touched it. Nobody knew it was in my desk. Uh, my, my, my office was locked. And it was always there. And, you know. Um, yeah, no, no, nowhere close to that today. Yeah, could you do that today? And then we we'd studied some interesting drug, like the drug I taught, showed today, the taming drug. It was fascinating what this drug could do to wild animals. And then all the opioids. And eventually, uh, uh, we were publishing some of this stuff. um, And this very potent stuff, the carfentanil. And so the the government, the U.S. government, came by and said, Dr. Steele, you know, we we were very interested in some of your work. Would you uh, be willing to do some studies for us in animals? And I said, sure. And so for the next 10 years, I was studying a variety of potent drugs, many opioids, some non-opioids, in rats, mice, ferrets, dogs, what have you. And eventually we got to monkeys with some of these, particularly with carfentanil. And we didn't have a good monkey colony in Utah. Of course not. But, but, uh, <laughs> but Davis, California, University of California, Davis, the vet school, uh, I knew the head of surgery and anesthesia. They were the same person. And he said, Dad, bring your, bring your, bring your misting chamber to, to Davis. We'll, we'll mist monkeys together. So a misting chamber would be like nebulizing? Yeah, nebulizing drug. Yeah. The, the drug <clears throat> in, a, in a plexiglass, three feet by three yeah. feet by two feet. You put the animal in there. Well, and you they, put the animal in yeah. there, and you, 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 you shh, turn on the mist, yeah. and you, you watch how quickly they would um, fall down. And uh, so we went up all these animals, and we got to monkeys, and and uh, we had a coffee break, and we're misting the monkeys. And you, with a low dose, the monkey was kind of really sedated and and all the aggressiveness and the monkey was gone and you could hold his hand or hold him in your arms yeah what people don't realize is monkeys uh literally will tear your face off yeah they'll tear your face off yeah but but this monkey was so mellow it was exciting for everybody to see that and so uh and and, you know you, you gave a little more and then they 
they were asleep. And then you gave you a little more and you'd have to intubate them because they're like humans, you know. And so we had my coffee break. Uh, and the, one of the vets, the way they traditionally uh, examine a monkey is they have to anesthetize them and they have to do an intramuscular injection, usually ketamine and something else. And But in order to get close to the monkey, they have to put them in a squeeze cage. Yeah, and they don't like that. And that's, that's frightening to them. Yeah. And they scream and spit and do everything, and it's traumatic. And, and so they said, can we put some of this in a sugar cube? And so I, yeah, why not? So we put some of the carfentanil, a low-dose sugar cube, a high-dose sugar cube. Well, with the low-dose sugar cube, we mimicked after the, mo- the monkey's, you know, macerated in their mouth, and it gets absorbed through the mucosa. So uh, with the low-dose, the monkey became very mellow, just like when we missed it, it with the low-dose. And you could walk it, you could pet it, you know. Uh, with the high dose, you could do an awake intubation very easily. So uh, they were very impressed with that. I think they tried some of that uh, in their monkeys after I after I had gone. So on the way home, I'm thinking, monkeys and sugar cubes, what's the <laughs> clinical application? How could I use this in patients? So the thought came to pediatric patients and the separation, the trauma the children go through being separated from their parents to go to the OR. And so I thought, a lollipop. Brilliant. And so we, Brilliant. I had a pharmacist friend, and he started making lollipops. He wanted to do it with fentanyl at first. I said, no, 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 no. Let's do it with fentanyl. We know more about it. There are fentanyl patches. And this yeah, sufentanil is very potent. Very potent. Ten times fentanyl. Yeah. So we did it with fentanyl, and over the course of a couple of years... We tried different sizes, fast sucking versus slow sucking, because there are different ways to do it. And, and so we discovered that the bioavailability was um, if you sucked it rather than swallowed it, the bioavailability was much, much higher because it went through mucosa. Yeah, your buccal mucosa. Yeah, rather than yeah. being swallowed and destroyed mostly by the, by the liver. So we realized that, that you wanted to... Um, you know, wipe it on your mucosa. We realized that the sublingual mucosa was the best mucosa, but we didn't come up with the idea of spraying it. That came by somebody else some years later. But we knew that this was the ideal place, and we tried to rub it under the tongue to get it better. But, you know, in any case, uh, we started a company. Uh, uh, I had learned from a company that had been started before in Utah, the Artificial Heart Company, what not to do. Yeah. Uh, because they had really destroyed the company. And uh, in any case, uh, I got fortunate in meeting a business guy who became my partner. And that's we- important for doctors to meet business people. Right. Because that's, that's their specialization. We have ours. That's exactly right. And so we became partners. And he, when, when you invent something, either in a hospital or in a university, uh, even though it's your idea, your employer, the university, owns it. Yeah. So once we decided to form a company, we had to license the invention, my invention, from the university. But Bill Mola, who was my CEO, 
was really skilled at that. He had done this before. And so he, we did the licensing thing and formed the company. We raised money. It was very interesting how we raised. It was mostly mom and pop, yeah. his mother and father, my mother and father, my <laughs> brother, his brother. And then we had the Department of Anesthesia. So we made a presentation to our, our Department of Anesthesia. And I, I wanted everybody, if this was possibly successful, and I had no idea it would be, but I wanted to, everybody to have the opportunity to be an investor and not be upset if we were successful. So I wanted to make sure that they had the opportunity. No pressure. Wise. And, and wise. so we, we presented, and half the department decided to invest. And so for the first year, I think we raised $125,000. Well, back then, it was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. Yeah. And then they all had, as we went on, um, they all had the opportunity of always reinvesting. Then at one point, and we did clinical studies, and at one point, we needed to get a partner. Of course, we get, everything was getting very expensive. And uh, at first, I had gone to Janssen and Abbott and Roche and all the companies. And before we had multiple clinical studies, nobody was interested. Then, three years later, we had many clinical studies. And, uh, and we also had the, the idea of, besides pre-medication and pain, uh, acute pain, um, we said, one of my colleagues said, what about breakthrough cancer pain? Yeah. And so. That's a tough one. We, we tried it in some of those patients they had. This is Perry Fine and Mike Ashburn, who were f- formerly young faculty and residents. Um, and it worked. And so we had a program now for, for breakthrough cancer pain. So we had one acute pain and one for breakthrough cancer pain. And finally, we got Abbott's attention, uh, and they became our partner. And we, and we were we were needing them because the money was very right. expensive to do all these clinical studies. And so, historically, it takes a long time to get a partner. You know, once you identify them, they agree. It takes months, months, months. And you know, we're putting our own checks into this. Yeah, there's no lawyers involved, is there? <laughs> <laughs> but we finally got their approval, and on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1989, the deal with Abbott was signed. Oh, and the president of Abbott's uh, Hospital Products Division name was Chris Kringle. Absolute truth. Perfect. 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 You, you can't make that up. That, but it was true. <laughs> so they, they, they agreed to invest $10 million in our company. And that got us through the rest of the studies. We got FDA approval in 1993 for Orlet, the pre-med, mm-hmm. and did an IPO in 1994, became a public company, raised lots of money. Um, and then in 1998, Actic was approved. And in 2000, a bigger company came along and said, we like you guys. And they purchased us. For, I didn't want to give it up, but our CEO at the time said, it's a good idea. And the board said, you know, this is my baby. Yeah, no, no. And uh, so they purchased us for hundreds of millions of dollars. Everybody was happy, the sh- except the shorts. 
Yeah. The short sellers lost a lot of money when it was announced. And then Cephalon sold a lot of Actic and uh, it, it became it became the first uh, turf product. Uh, Transmit goes to immediate release. That's uh, a great story. Dr. De La Garza. Um, we look at fentanyl one way. I'm gonna, generationally, I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I did cardiac anesthesia uh, in the 80s. And we would get fentanyl, your drug, in 20cc vials. Do you remember those? Of course. I did Mount, uh, cardiac anesthesia at Mount Sinai in Miami. Yeah. And also at the VA in Tampa. And we called them the big sticks. Well, as you mentioned in your lecture this morning, 1cc at 50 micrograms was a big deal when this drug came out we would give a hundred cc's even more (laughs) people would be unconscious for days the big stick one big stick before induction one big stick after induction one big stick to go on pump one big stick to come off a pump and be uh be asleep for probably half a day maybe a full day in the icu after we do the uh, cardiac case yeah we uh used to use that drug (laughs) Now we've got better drugs. Uh, people wake up and try to get them walking the same day or get them up in bed. So we all have kind of cardiac heritage, and we all found our way to pain. And uh, so your era then morphed into the propofol era. This is true. Yeah, and my era was stuck in uh, fentanyl, but one of the best drugs to replace morphine of all. And can you tell us a little bit about your elk? Well, you know, when we got carfentanil, which is very potent. Very potent. It's uh, it's 40, 40 times the potency of fentanyl, uh, and it's about uh, eight thousand times the potency of morphine, roughly. Right. And uh, so, J- Doctor Jansen had sent me all these drugs, and he and he was studying carfentanil in elephants and impala. And other drugs in Africa, and he said, and and I knew that we had a problem with our wildlife in the state of Utah, and mostly it happens in the springtime when Mama Moose kicks out last year's baby moose, uh, and he doesn't know which way to go. Because he has he's to been moose followed. out. He's got yeah, to moose out. He's got moose out, and he sometimes walks down. And now he's almost a big boy. I mean, he's a yearling. He walks down in the middle of Ogden. And people say, well, what are we going to do with this? And they didn't have good methods of knocking those animals down safely, bringing them back to the mountains in those days. And oftentimes the animals would die, which was a 6 o'clock news item. You know, wildlife people killed another moose. Uh, uh, So there was stress on the wildlife people. And so when I got the carfentanil and there was one of these stories, I I called up... uh, the Division of Wildlife Resources, and I think you might have an anesthesia problem. I'd love to talk to you about it. I'm an anesthesiologist at the university. And I met a wonderful man who invited me up to the outdoor laboratory of the Division of Wildlife Resources, which was uh, west of Logan, Utah. And uh, it's a big, big, big field. They have corrals there, and the elk are fed in the wintertime. Hey, uh, that it is grown in the summertime, and they cut it, and they put it in bales, and then they put out these bales. To, and, and they put some of these bales in the corral. And as a result, and they keep the door open with a wire attached to one of the bales. 
No. So the the elks attack that bale, the dog slams shut, and you get 20 to 30 volunteers. And the wildlife people use these techniques to study the animals to see if they're healthy, uh, to take blood samples, and because that's the only way they have of taking these wild, getting samples of these wild animals. So they, we, we, we did these studies, and then um, we started with ketamine, actually, mm-hmm. as our first drug, and it works really well in elk, but it's not potent enough. This is like little darts, right? Well, well, we studied with syringes because it's, that's the way you study. You would need to measure them out, mm-hmm. we weighed the animals, we gave certain milligrams per kilogram of the drug, and it turns out in intramuscularly, like in people, eight milligrams per kilogram is a good dose in elk. But when you have a hundred kilogram, hundred kilogram, we're talking about three hundred kilogram elk. You don't have enough ketamine at a hundred milligrams per cc. The dart would be three foot long. (laughs) So ketamine, although it worked well, was not potent enough. So that's when we went to carfentanil, and so we started. We studied other drugs too, but carfentanil seemed logical, and we measured amount and studied it, injected it and released the animal into corral and measured with a second hand how quickly the animal would fall down. Now this was such nice research that every year, you know, two or three of the TV stations would come up and film this. So all of my fellows have been on TV (laughs) watching these studies with the elk and eventually we uh, got very sophisticated and then we went down to the San Diego Wildlife Park, who need to do a lot of the mobilizations. We studied the drug in all kinds of other wild species. And the results of these studies were that carfentanil was eventually approved for use in wildlife animals. And a, a separate company broke off from Janssen called Wild. I can't remember. Western Wildlife Laboratories. And the generic name for carfentanil, or, or the trade name, rather, is wild nil. Oh, well, good. <laughs> good name. <laughs> anyway, it's available. They use it in zoos and wildlife parks, and I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, you, know? you should be. You was, should it was, be. It was such fun experiences that we had in the wintertime. Sometime in the summertime, we did buffalo and wild goats in, 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 in the state of Washington. We went up to the Cascades and, and immobilized some wild. It was just fun research. It's been fascinating talking to you. Dr. De La Garza, you have any comments? I do have some comments. I have to say that it is a pleasure and honor to be at the table with the pioneers, not only in anesthesia, but also in pain. And I have to say that from a Gen X to understand the lineage of fentanyl, how it's come through the ages in terms of cardiac anesthesia to anesthesia to post-operative pain control to the oralette to the transmucosal fentanyl class and then to treatment of cancer pain and where we are now i have to say that the evolution of that molecule and your knowledge frankly has given us the ability to treat patients in the throes of the worst types of pain that they can experience but that has to be balanced now with the societal 
risk associated with the fentanyl-like compounds, and now the fact that fentanyl and its analogs are making their way into the illicit market where heroin is now much more potent than it has been in decades and unfortunately people are dying right and left literally here in Florida but also across the United States centering in clusters so we understand the potency and the the potential for harm based upon the fact that these medications can literally tranquilize animals that are 10, 15 times bigger than even human, <laughs> even elephants. Yeah. So the risk and reward balance of these molecules often has to be looked at from the prism of perspective and to be able to listen to the stories and how these, these, uh, this evolution of knowledge has come down to where it is now. It's just an honor and a blessing. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Stanley. And uh, it was great having you here. I know you got to go catch a plane, but uh, once again, you know, a true pioneer, and we appreciate it. Thank you. All right, I'm going to pretty much leave it there. And thanks again, everybody.